God met me in, uh, you know, in an apartment in Stamford, Connecticut, watching TV. <laughs> I wasn't praying in church before a statue of Mary saying, please make me a priest. I was, I was tired at the end of the day, a terrible day. I just finished a bowl of spaghetti that I heated up. And I was watching PBS. <laughs> and that's where God met me, because that's where I was. Right. And so that's where we need to meet people, where they are. That's where Jesus met people. He meets everybody where they are, and that should be our model, too. Before Pope Francis, Father James Martin was perhaps the best-known and loved Jesuit writing in American life. He's followed the calling of the founder of the Jesuit order, St. Ignatius of Loyola, to find God in all things— and in 21st century forms, as editor of America magazine, but also as a wise and witty presence on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. To delve into Father Martin's way of being in the world is to discover the spiritual exercises St. Ignatius designed to be accessible to everyone more than six centuries ago. These underpin the Jesuit way of contemplation in action and are now shaping the Vatican in a new age. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. James Martin has been a member of the Jesuit Order, the Society of Jesus, since 1998. He lives in the America House Jesuit community in Midtown Manhattan. He grew up in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. And he's the author of many books, including The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, Jesus, A Pilgrimage, and his new book, Seven Last Words. I spoke with him in 2014. You know, of course, I've known about you and kind of read you for years and... It was fun to to dive in. I did not know the part of your story that, you know, because you are known as a religious figure, you know, it didn't surprise me that much that you didn't grow up especially religious or grow up to be religious. But I, I did not realize that you studied business in college and worked in corporate finance for GE into your mid-20s um, and only then were captured, uh, it seems, by Thomas Merton. Is that right? Was that really what... The big turning point for you? It was. I um, I grew up, what I say, in a lukewarm Catholic family. That doesn't mean my parents weren't good people or Catholic, but, you know, we weren't super Catholic. Mm-hmm. I certainly never thought about being a priest or I didn't know what a Jesuit was. And uh, I went to the Wharton School of Business uh, in from 1978 to 1982 and got a degree in finance. We were told finance, not finance. Uh, that's, you know, it's much <laughs> Glad I learned that at this late stage yes. in my life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And um, I took a job with GE, uh, General Electric in New York, and and worked for GE uh, in finance and accounting and then in human resources uh, at GE Capital, their financial services arm, for six years before I uh, figured that uh, this was just not the right place for me. And I came home one night, and uh, in the midst of a lot of confusion about my future, I turned on the TV and saw a documentary about uh, Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, uh, who I had never heard of. And the documentary was so compelling that it prompted me to go out and read his book, The Seven-Story Mountain, which, uh, you know, to coin a phrase, changed my life. Hmm. It's, it's pretty amazing the number of really interesting monastics in particular who, who were led down that path by Thomas Merton's book, The Seven-Story Mountain, isn't it? I mean, you must have come across that. Oh, dozens. So and, uh, many. You know, here's, yeah. yeah, here's a book written in the 40s that still speaks to people. And I think, 
you know, for those who don't know what it's about, uh, you know, he's a, a sort of a lost young man uh, who lives a fairly dissolute life, uh, born in France, studies in England, finally comes to Columbia University and uh, stumbles on the Trappist monks uh, and finds his vocation and enters. You know, um, I also noticed that you you found his book, No Man is an Island, uh, important mm. because I'd say that's the book that kind of crossed my path at a moment where I was opening my mind to all of this in a new way and, and it was really transformative. And, and somewhere in one of your books, you, you pull out this first paragraph of No Man is an Island, you know, why do we spend our lives striving to be something that we would never want to be if only we knew what we wanted? Why do we waste our time doing things which, if we only stop to think about them, are just the opposite of what we were made for? Yeah, I, that, that's the line that changed my life, really. And I just thought, wh- why? <laughs> why am I doing that? Mm-hmm. And it felt like he was speaking directly to me. And I felt like, you know, business is a real vocation for a lot of people. Uh, and it just wasn't for me. And I was miserable. And I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't know how I could find a way out. And that sentence, which really was like a thunderbolt, uh, just prompted me to just shake things up and ask myself that question. I always say to young people, you know, um, what would you want to do if you could do anything that uh, you could do? It's a very clarifying question for people. And that's, you know, Jesus asks people that, you know, what do you want? Mm-hmm. You know, kind of understanding your desires. So, yeah, I love that paragraph. I go back to it a lot. I think something that really runs through all your writing is that uh, that callings and vocation as opposed to mere career is not something that's restricted to monastics. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Or priests or sisters or brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone has a vocation. I mean, the most fundamental vocation is to become the person you know, whom God created. And it's, it's both the person you already are and the person that God calls you to be. Um, and I think we find that out through our desires, you know, what, what moves us, what touches us, uh, you know, what are we drawn to. Part of that's career, you know, but only part of it. I mean, it's really who you're called to be. And that's why that question really spoke to me. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a popular misconception that having a quote-unquote vocation means that you have to be a priest or a sister or a brother. But a vocation is your deepest identity and as well, you know, being called to married life or being a lawyer or a Yeah, being a parent, or, I think, is a vocation. Absolutely. To, absolutely. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, much harder vocation than being a priest, frankly. <laughs> you know, we don't get up at uh, 3 in the morning for, for feeding. Well, you don't, get, you don't get any of that training. You just <laughs> plunge into <laughs> no, it. No, we do not. <laughs> I mean, I love, you know, and I love the use of the word desire because, again, I think if we do separate, if we do think about, you know, vocation or calling in kind of narrow spiritual terms, which sounds very serious, um, mm-hmm. then we probably wouldn't use that language of desire, that it, that it has to do with your desires and, in fact, being in touch with them is one kind of compass. But, in fact, there is a very long and deep philosophical and theological tradition of thinking about desire and calling. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a Jesuit, and uh, our founder, St. Ignatius, in his classic text, The Spiritual Exercises, talked about praying for what you desire uh, and also praying to understand your desires. Mm. Uh, you know, what are your deepest desires that moves you? Because I believe that your deepest desires, the things that you're drawn to, the, the, the person you're called to be, are really God's desires for you. I mean, how else would God call us to something? 
you know, you'd think of a married couple, that's the easiest example. You know, they're drawn to each other. And, and that you would ask them, do you feel drawn to each other? Do you feel God drew you to one another? They'd say, sure. Well, how does that happen? Desire, physical, emotional, spiritual. It's the same in different jobs. It's the same in religious vocations. But it's also the same in the person you desire to be. I think we all have a, an image of the person we want to become, you know, more loving, more open, more free. Mm-hmm. That's a call. That, that is God calling you to become that person. And it's, it starts with desire. Uh, which I think is so beautiful that just yeah. it's it's helping people understand that and recognizing it that it, it in a way that to, to tell them it's not selfish you know desire ultimately is not selfish yeah it's freeing and it opens the possibility that this that this you know not necessarily is easy but is a you know is a process that has joy in it <laughs> and delight yeah. and um, and and heartache sometimes yeah, as, of as we try to as we as we let go of the things that we're not called to be and the parts mm-hmm. of our lives that you know, are keeping us back. I mean, this, this comes up again and again in direction. I mean, people, they in see who they direction. are before God. Yeah, mm-hmm. they, in spiritual direction, they see who they are before God, and they they feel the sense of wanting to, you know, in a sense, move beyond that and become someone different. And and I always tell them, this is good. This is this is God calling you. You know, it's just, this is a process, and it's it's ultimately liberating, which is a great message for people. So, you know, spiritual direction is an example of something like contemplation in Christianity that that for a long time was kind of consigned to experts, monks and nuns, mm-hmm. professional religious mm-hmm. people. But I do think that St. Ignatius of Loyola, who was the founder of your order of the Jesuits, was was a kind of exception to that rule of, of keeping these things for specialists. Um, and that's something that I think people are rediscovering also, you know, through you at this moment. Well, I hope so. Um, You know, you're right. Uh, The spiritual exercises and spiritual direction and that practice uh, is at the heart of uh, Jesuit spirituality or Ignatian spirituality. And you're right. Ignatius meant that for everyone. Yeah. Uh, And that got him into a lot of trouble, uh, you know, uh, when he was alive in the 16th century. Uh, He liked to say that the creator could deal directly with the creature so that God can deal directly with us through prayer, through our daily experiences. And spiritual direction is basically helping people see where God's activity, uh, you know, is happening in their lives, mostly in their prayer, but also in their daily lives. And it's, it's. I do a lot of spiritual direction um, with a lot of different kinds of people, and it's beautiful to see how God is at work in people's life. And uh, it, it's a real grace to be able to to do that. It kind of increases your own faith too. But you're right. Ignatius meant that for everyone because God deals with everyone directly, even though people sometimes aren't aware of it. It's just a question of an inviting them to notice it, uh, to be aware of that and to kind of awake to that. So how would you begin to talk about the, you know, the distinctives of, of Ignatian uh, spirituality? Probably the, the, the shortest way of describing it, it is finding God in all things. Yeah. Um, and the idea is that God is not simply to be found in our prayer life, which is very important, or in worship services and mass or in reading the Bible, all those are important and at the center of uh, that kind of spirituality. But in your daily life, you know, in your relationships, uh, uh, in your work, uh, in the emotions that come up, in those moments that you uh, see a sunset and you say, my gosh, that's so beautiful. Why am I feeling like this? Or, you know, you see an infant for the first time, like, you know, your niece or your nephew or your son or your daughter or granddaughter or grandson, and you say, my gosh, you know, where am I? Where are these feelings coming from? And you know, these are ways that God has of communicating with us through our daily lives in all things. 
And then the second way we look at it is being a contemplative in action. So we're not monks. We Jesuits are not monks. We're out in the world. Uh, and yet we have that contemplative stance towards everything so that every moment is an invitation to encounter the living God, you know, who wants to encounter us. So uh, it's a beautiful spirituality. It's very kind of spacious and it fits people and it's user-friendly. Uh, I'm directing a, a young man through uh, the spiritual exercises right now, and it's wonderful to see how his life is changing. And I have other people who are spiritual directees, as they're called in the trade, and uh, it's just beautiful to see. It's a, it's a, that, that's Ignatius's great gift to the world. Uh, the Jesuits' great gift is not our schools and our high schools as wonderful as they are. It's Ignatian spirituality and the spiritual exercises. So, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's life-changing. Like for somebody who'd never experienced it, I mean, there's this imaginative, um, visual uh, mm -hmm. aspect, which is very accessible. Yeah. So the kind of prayer you're talking about is often called Ignatian contemplation, or Ignatius mm -hmm. calls it composition of place. And it's using your imagination to place yourself within a scripture scene uh, and to see what comes up, you know, by way of emotions or feelings or desires. And it can be very transformative. So, for example, you take a Simple passage like uh, the storm at sea, Jesus calming the storm at sea. You would ask the person, you know, on, on your own or maybe in a guided meditation, uh, you know, imagine yourself on the boat with Jesus. You know, what do you see, first of all? You know, what's the boat look like? What, is, what do the disciples look like? What's Jesus look like? What do you hear? You know, what are the waves like? What do you feel? You feel the cold water on your back? Uh, what do you smell? Is there a smell of fish? Um, and, you know, what, 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 do you, what do you experience in terms of like what you're wearing? And, and you basically trust that God's going to uh, be with you because, you know, God created your imagination and it's an entree into uh, experiencing God. And you notice what happens. And oftentimes, not always, uh, some pretty amazing things can come up. For example, you know, you see Jesus asleep in the boat and you start to realize, wow, you know, why is he asleep? Doesn't he care? You might connect it with something in your own life. You know, why is Jesus asleep? Why does not God not care about me right now? You see him do the miracle and still the storm, and you say to yourself, wow, you know, that's really beautiful. Are there times in my life where, you know, I was worried that God was asleep and things worked out okay? You know, do I need to have more trust? So those kinds of feelings can come up. You know, just something as simple as I'm angry at God for being asleep can lead you into an, uh, an encounter with God or a conversation with God, which can be very healing for people. So mm. it's not for everybody. Not everybody likes it. Some people like more content-less prayer, like centering prayer, which is just kind of quiet. But it's the primary way I pray. And for most people, it's really transformative. It's kind of interesting, um, as I hear you talking about it, it's, it's kind of like a contemplative, um, visual... Christian form of midrash, right? <laughs> Jewish midrash, mm -hmm. which is about kind of it reading is. between the lines in order to understand the, the words better. Well, and also, yeah, you also notice things that you would have not noticed. Right. Uh, I did a meditation with a group uh, a year or two ago, and it was the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. And in one of the uh, stories where Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes and feeds the crowds, there's a little boy who brings, you know, five barley loaves and two fish. And this one woman in this, this group I was um, facilitating said, I never noticed that little boy. She said, I've read this story, you know, probably hundreds of times and mm -hmm. heard it at Mass. I never knew he was there. And she said, and I, I spent time just looking at him and noticing how he was able to bring what little he had to Jesus. And that was her insight. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I've been a Jesuit for 
26 years now. And, and that's happened to me dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And I've heard it in direction and I've heard it in from my other Jesuit brothers. And it's astonishing. I mean, it, it, the, the gospels become your own. Uh, and it's great. I mean, you know, you, you feel like you, you get to know Jesus and that's the goal of Ignatian spirituality in the end. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Jesuit writer and spiritual teacher, Father James Martin. Tell me what you mean when you say and when you write, um, the way of Ignatius was about finding freedom. How are you using that word? Well, Ignatius uh, wanted us uh, to be free of anything that kept us from following God. Uh, He called them disordered attachments. And the idea is that uh, if anything keeps you from, you know, being more open to God's will in your life, get rid of it, basically. Uh, A simple example, when I was a Jesuit novice, uh, first part of the uh, Jesuit training, I went into my novice director and we were supposed to be assigned to different ministries working with the poor for the first year of our novitiate. And I said, well, you know what? The last thing I want to do, (laughs) I said, is work in a hospital. I don't think I could stand that, the smells and the sights and the sounds. And he said, well, good. Then you'll be working in a hospital. (laughs) (laughs) And why is he doing that? It wasn't to punish me. It was to kind of free me up from that. You know, so, you know, his insight was, which is a very classic Jesuit insight, if that is something that's going to be preventing you from meeting people and from doing your ministry, you need to let go of it. And the way to let go of it in this case was to kind of experience it. And I, you know, now I can go into hospitals and, you know, imagine a priest who was so unfree that he couldn't set foot in a hospital, you know, or a Jesuit who couldn't So do is that. that this concept of aguerra contra? Yes. To act yeah. against, which, mm-hmm. at the, I, you know, I, I, at the end of your book, um, The Jesuit Guide to Nearly Everything, you said, in this interview, you wished you'd written more about that. And I think that's what you just described, isn't it? That sometimes, in fact, we have to act against our instincts to do what we actually really want to do, right? Yeah, yeah. So Ajare Kancha, uh, to act against, is exactly that. And it's a way of freeing yourself up. And it sounds, you know, it, sound, it can sound kind of masochistic, but it's basically, it's confronting those fears, not simply for the sake of confronting them to kind of, you know, show how strong you are and master them, but to let go of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ignatius wanted us to be free, there's so much, I feel, in, in Ignatian spirituality that is just so resonant with now in a moment which I, I think is just profoundly historic in that for the first time in centuries, if not ever, human beings are not inheriting their belief system anymore. But this in the six paths to God, as you lay them out, I mean, belief is one of them. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but the others are very... Uh, Familiar, you know, disbelief, independence, return, exploration, confusion. Yeah, and that's that's just based on my experience with people. You know, that's where they are, and you know, trying to accompany them. And you know, I was on all those different paths at one time or another in my life. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who do grow up with a very strong belief system, and uh, you know, are born into a family that's very religious or very spiritual. But you know, even those people, uh, I find in their twenties and thirties, often break off. You know, they have to kind of reappropriate it. But you're right, people are coming at it from different points of view. And I think that one of the strengths of Ignatian spirituality is is that it meets people where they are. Uh, It says, okay, 
you know, you're starting to be interested in God because of a book you read, great, let's start there. Let's start with your reading. Or you're interested in God because of uh, some movie you saw and it, it made you it made you moved or fine, let's start there. What's your experience of that movie? Let's talk about that. It's very Ignatian and it's just very open because, again, it's finding God in all things. Mm. So you don't say, well, because you weren't in church when that happened, it doesn't count. You meet the person where the person is as you know, that's where God met me. God met me in, uh, you know, in an apartment in Stamford, Connecticut, watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't praying in church before a statue of Mary saying, please make me a priest. I was, I was tired at the end of the day, a terrible day. I just finished a bowl of spaghetti that I'd heated up, and I was watching PBS. <laughs> and that's where God met me, because that's where I was. Right. And so that's where we need to meet people, where they are. That's where Jesus met people. Jesus met people where they were. He didn't sit on his butt all day in Capernaum. He sat on his butt a little bit, and people came to him. But <laughs> most of the times, he went out, and he met people where they were. You know, if you're fishing, I'm going to go to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to say, follow me, and I will make you, you know, fishers of people. I'm going to even use a, a phrase from your argot, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. terrific. He meets everybody where they are, and that should be our model, too. Tell me what it means for you to have a Jesuit now on the throne of St. Peter. Uh, uh, it's hard to put into words. It's great. Um, I think the most exciting part is seeing him invite people into Jesuit spirituality without even using those words. I mean, he very rarely, he'll he'll at at times advert to St. Ignatius Loyola or the spiritual exercises, but he just does it in his own way. I think it was a year ago at his Easter Mass, um, he started talking about imagining yourself on Easter Sunday morning, running with the women to the tomb. It was a kind of Ignatian contemplation. He said, imagine what it would be like. And I, I was see. watching it with right. uh, my mom uh, at my sister's <laughs> house, you know, with her family. And my mom said, do you think he read your book? <laughs> and I laughed and I said, you know, this is Ignatian spirituality. You know? We read and some so, of the same books. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, in, in other times... Um, you know, he'll say, now close your eyes and let's imagine ourselves in this scene. And he will do what's, you know, called a guided meditation where you kind of invite the person into the scene, you know, imaginatively. It's all Ignatian spirituality. Yeah. Uh, and so to be able to, 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 to see this kind of on a worldwide level is, is just beautiful. Uh, and I just, I mean, I just love the guy. I mean, I, I think his emphasis on the poor is fantastic. I think meeting people where they are. And, you know, frankly, I think the key to understanding him is his Jesuit background. I mean, here's a guy who is free, you know, who does not have disordered attachments. And imagine imagine if someone was so attached to having to do things the the way that they were done, for example, like living in the apostolic palace. He's not. He's free of that. I don't have to do that. <laughs> right. I'm free of that. He's free of the shoes as well, isn't he? I think. He's yes. He's free of the shoes. And mm-hmm. but but in, in all seriousness, imagine yeah. if he had said, "I must continue to do this." You know, Ignatius would say, "You know, are you are you being free? You know, what mm-hmm. what do you really need? What's necessary?" And uh, it's it's beautiful. I I find him very inspiring. Um, he he makes me want to be a better. Jesuit, a better priest, a better Catholic, a better Christian, and a better person. Hmm. So, you know, across the years, I've interviewed a fair number of Jesuits, mm-hmm. and they've been really different 
people, you know, they've been <laughs> astronomers, they've been social activists. Um, you know the old expression, if you've met one Jesuit, you've met one Jesuit. <laughs> no, I, I did not know that. But I, what I was yeah. going to say is the, the one thing they all have in common is they're funny. Okay. <laughs> really. They have all had a great sense of humor. Well, I hope so. Um, I mean, there are a few unfunny Jesuits. <laughs> well, I'm sure there <laughs> that, are. You know, let's say more serious. But, um, you know, I, I would hope that part of that is perspective. You know, one of the things that that the spiritual exercises and Jesuit formation teaches you is that uh, you are not perfect. Um, <laughs> the beginning of the spiritual exercises is actually a an encounter with your own sinfulness, which is not to make you feel terrible about yourself because we're all God's creations, but we're all human beings. We all have sins. We all have flaws and failures and things like that. And that's very humbling to be able to to see that about yourself. And I think that gives you uh, a lot of perspective. Um, and it means that that you can laugh at yourself. My spiritual director always likes to say, there's good news and there's better news. Do you know this, by the way? Have no. you heard this? No. The good news is there is a Messiah. The better news is it's not you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's not all up to you, uh, and you will come up, and I come up against my sinfulness and my flaws and my struggles daily. Uh, I really do, and I don't mean that as, like, false humility. That is true, and that keeps you humble, I think, and I think that means you can laugh at yourself, and well, most Jesuits are pretty good at laughing at themselves. Yeah, I mean, I agree with the last part of that, that I've, I mean, a lot of Jesuits are good at laughing at themselves. I mean, it's, it's also, it can cut both ways, though, you know. I mean, you, you know, you've pointed out, you've written a whole book about joy and laughter and humor, and, and you said, and I think we can all identify, I've come across a surprising number of spiritually aware people who are, in a word, grim, and that yeah. joylessness is, you know, it's ecumenical interfaith. It's, it's yeah, a, the frozen chosen. The frozen chosen. Yeah. yeah. But you, well, I mean, well, go on, go on. No, I was going to say that, um, you know, it's also very unchristian. I mean, the, the, the ultimate message of, of the Gospels and of Christianity is uh, Christ is risen. Right, I mean that's that's the end of the story, and that's a that's a joyful message. I always laugh at people who, you know, who say, well, you know, joy is really, you know, not too much joy, not too much happiness. And I say, you know, imagine the disciples on Easter Sunday. Do you think they were going around with long faces? Um, and Jesus himself, you know, lived a joyful life. You can see signs of that in the Gospels in terms of his clever parables and his funny stories. And you know, for Pete's sakes, his his first miracle was at a party, a wedding party. Mm-hmm. Where he was a good boy and did what his mother told him to do. And that's, that's right. <laughs> um, that's what I appreciate so, about that story. Although he's pretty, he's pretty harsh with his mother. That's a that's a that's a great story. But he did turn the water into wine. He did eventually. If he'd been um, thinking about his legacy, you know, he might not have had that as his first miracle. But his mother asked him to do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's I never thought of that. Right, okay. he wanted another first miracle. <laughs> I'm doing a I'm doing an Ignatian. You know, I'm being in the story, you know and I'm I'm and taking. And you know what? And you know what's great about that? What yeah. you just said. Who knows? That could have been it. You know, I mean, that's one of the things that comes up in Ignatian contemplation. You focus on Mary, and you say, you know, yeah. for example, in the wedding feast of Cana, what is she thinking? And you know, you can get into the story and say, what's going on there? Mm-hmm. So yeah, who knows? But yeah, it, it, he's a joyful person, and I think we. If we miss the joy in Christianity, we are, we are missing the point.
You can listen again and share this conversation with Father James Martin through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the beloved Jesuit writer and teacher, Father James Martin. He follows the call of the founder of the Jesuit order, St. Ignatius of Loyola, to find God in all things. He brings the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius to diverse modern people and offers spiritual wisdom in diverse 21st century places. I spoke with him in 2014 during the final season of the Colbert Report, on which Father James Martin made several appearances. You happen to be the chaplain of the Colbert Nation, according to Stephen Colbert himself. Yes, well, until the show ends. Um, well, no, no, but I mean, here's the question I want to ask you that I, I know everybody will be wondering about if you will preside over his installation at the Late Show. <laughs> uh, I always say if he invites me, I will come. <laughs> I am I am free enough. <laughs> Plus, funny enough, it's like two blocks away from my Jesuit community, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I do pay attention to language and how a lot of the words that we most need get a little bit messed up in, in the way they get used. And I feel like, you know, the, the way you're talking about joy and laughter and humor is, it's not exactly w- the way we use the word happiness. I mean, it, I just, mm-hmm. it seems to me it's kind of like the difference between hope and optimism. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, joy is different than happiness. Uh, joy uh, is happiness in God. Joy has an object. Joy is about a relationship. Uh, happiness you know, it, it can be very evanescent. Uh, it can, you know, come one day and leave the next. But joy is a lot deeper than that. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you something. Um, I had a friend of mine who just died a few days ago, uh, just this incredible Jesuit. His name was T.J. Martinez. And uh, he died of stomach cancer at age 44. And um, he, hmm. even towards the end, was joyful. And I mean that in the most, sort of the fullest way, uh, it wasn't fake. Uh, it wasn't insincere, but he was joyful. Uh, and, um, you know, towards the end of his life, he sent me a message through a friend saying, you know, the last six years of my life, he had worked in a a school for uh, poor children in Houston called the Cristo Rey School that he founded. He said, the last six years of my life have been my best assignment ever. And he said, my next assignment will be even better. You know, mm. and he just, he would send me these texts that were joyful. And so... Why is that? Was was TJ happy about having cancer? No, not at all. Uh, but he was in relationship with God, and uh, he he had this trust, and he had this experience of joy, and so that's that's the difference, I think. You know, uh, the people who this 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 theme of humor as a virtue and and humor as a kind of mark of God also is something that's that's run through my life of conversation and and I think it's just most profoundly embodied in Desmond Tutu mm-hmm. who first of all just again embodies it. Yeah, we're drawn to people like that and the people who are most in touch with God are those who are joyful and vice versa. I was uh walking up uh, Madison Avenue the other day. I live in New York and uh I was, you know, sometimes you overhear these snatches of conversation these two guys, these two young executives were talking and uh <laughs> the one said, yeah, I got to meet my girlfriend's mother this weekend. She's really religious. 
<laughs> and I thought, that doesn't sound like a compliment. Yeah. You know, versus, you know, like Pope Francis or Desmond Tutu or the Dalai Lama. I mean, they're religious, but it's not like you're terrified to meet them. And it is, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding of uh, how we view God and for the Christians, how we view Jesus, because we have viewed Jesus as the man of sorrows primarily, mm. you know, and you go into a Catholic church, you know, into the, yeah. you know, my denomination. All those depressing. You see, well, you see <laughs> yeah. Jesus on a cross, which yeah. is very important. I always tell people, but that is a part of his life. Uh, you know, most of his life was, needless to say, not on the cross and not about suffering. Uh, and so he's the man of joys, too. And, and you see statues of the saints and they all look ticked off. You yeah. know, they all look like they're mad about something or yeah. they smelled a piece of bad cheese. Yeah. And what that does is it subtly influences how we see holiness in our own lives. You know, because if Jesus and the saints were morose and dull and, you know, overly pious and, as Pope Francis said, looked like they went around sucking on a lemon, uh, then we're, we're like that, too. And as a result, we think that when people are joyful and happy, they're somehow not religious or they're not serious. Right. You know, when I did this book on joy uh, and humor and laughter, I was stunned to find, you know, the number of books on humor and laughter in the Christian tradition are, you know, maybe like fill like half a shelf because it's not seen as important. Now, you go to the Christian uh, section of your library and look up suffering. Well, you know, there you go. You know, you can read from now until kingdom come. Yeah, I know. But also, that here's where you get, there's a difference between, I think there's just a lot of religious jokes, I think, don't tend to be very funny. Um, but that's oh, not the same oh, as humor. Really? <laughs> do you know what I mean? I don't know. I know some pretty great religious oh, do you? jokes. Okay, well, another time. <laughs> another <laughs> Let's time. Let's see if we have time at the end of this interview. You can tell Sure. Some. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, you know, to me, this does um, touch on something I want to ask you about. Um, something you've said, that, that the way you think about friendships can mm-hmm. help you think about and deepen your relationship with God. Absolutely. And uh, it's, it's usually the most clarifying way for people to start to think about a relationship with God. And the idea is that, uh, you know, friendship is an analog with a relationship with God. So, for example, um, what makes a good friendship? What, what, what is required? Well, time, for example. You know, you would scarcely say, I'm good friends with this person and never spend any time one-on-one with him or her. Well, what about your relationship with God? You spend one-on-one time with God? You know, is there time? How about honesty? You know, what happens if you're not honest in a friendship? Well, it starts to grow cold or formal or, you know, very distant. Same with God. If we're not honest in prayer about what we feel about our struggles, our anger, our sorrows, our relationship gets very cold and distant. How about listening? You know, if you had a friend that all you did was talk at, you know, that wouldn't be a very deep friendship. Can you listen to God's voice in your daily life and in your prayer? So, um, this is a, an insight from um, Father William Barry, uh, who's a Jesuit um, in New England. And it's been very helpful for me. And it really helps people because it really gets their, uh, their spiritual life kind of back on track. Uh, you know, can you relate to God uh, in a similar way that you relate to a friend? You know, time, honesty, openness, silence. Are you comfortable with... Uh, Silence. Does, yeah, does and, your friend have to call you, you know, every day and say, I like you? <laughs> right, right. Or also companionable silence, right? Just yes. the, just the being able to, the people you're closest to, you don't have to be talking all the time or have them talking to you. Yeah, you know, I always use the example of if you're quiet with God in prayer, you know, this is sort of the, I would say the opposite of Ignatian contemplation, centering prayer, which is just 
centering prayer is just being in the presence of God, simply put. Can you imagine that like taking a long walk on a beach with a friend and saying nothing? You know, I mean, is that any less of a relationship or relating uh, than if you're talking over a dinner? No, it's just a different way of relating. There's no right way to pray or wrong way to pray. That's another great insight of Ignatian spirituality. Whatever helps you feel closest to God is great. Hmm. You know, you write in a very winsome way about being monastic and being a modern person and, and also not in a, in a tell-all way, but I think you, you are revealing and you're writing to a, to a broad audience. So, you know, so, you know it's taken by um, a place in one of your writing where you, you, know, you say that when you were becoming a Jesuit— um, you said you said you're not monastic, right? Is that right? Am I getting that? Am I well, not? I'm I'm not a monk. You're not um, a monk, so, but, but it is yeah, a monastic so, order, right? It's, well, it no, no, not really. Not? Um, so there are monastic orders, which would be you know cloistered and living in monasteries. Yeah. Um, but we're more we're religious order is kind of the broader term. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry, I'm sorry, I've been getting That's that okay. wrong. But but no, it is okay. You know I, I didn't it, know that before I entered the Jesuits. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess I, I was conflating religious orders and monastic yeah. orders. Yeah. Um, no, okay. But anyway, so that when you were becoming a Jesuit, someone said to me, one of your teachers or mentors said, you know, you will fall in love, right? You're taking mm-hmm. you're taking this vow of celibacy, but you will fall in love. And you said you did fall in love. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that that's uh, I think that's important for people to hear to humanize this way of of life that you've chosen and that many other people of great integrity have chosen across time. Yeah, I also think it's important for people to hear. I think, uh, you know, when you enter the a religious order, you don't check your sexuality at the door. Uh, you fall in love. And my novice director said, and if people don't fall in love with you, something's wrong, mm-hmm. you know, because you're living a loving life and we're, we're human beings. And actually, I was horrified. I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, if, what if I fall in love? And not that love is a bad thing, but this would be terrible. And, and I did. I fell in love in a very deep way. Um, and, uh, you know, I had to make a decision. My spiritual director at the time, which was, you know, really helpful and human and real, and I've, you know, had this experience with people coming to me, said to me, okay, you know, you fell in love, and it's beautiful, and someone fell in love with you, and that's beautiful too, and now you have to make a choice. Do you continue with this this way of life, right, which is about chastity and loving people um, freely and deeply, but not exclusively, that's how we say it, you know, not, you know, just one person, or do you choose to leave, you know, and continue this relationship with this person? So I chose to stay, you know, after looking back on my life and seeing how happy I was as someone who was living chastity. So, you know, I, I, I thought it was really important to put that in the book because it's true, first of all. Um, it was an experience of discernment. Um, but it's also, uh, as you say, it kind of dispels these notions that, uh, that people don't fall in love. I mean, it happens to married people. Right, right. People yeah. that are then committed yeah. relationships. And it, it's kind of the same thing. It's, okay, now what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know, now you're given a choice. What do you do? And, you know, it was a gift to me in the end. I mean, it was very turbulent, um, obviously. But it was a gift to me because it, uh, it was beautiful to fall in love and have someone fall in love with you. But it was also a gift of discernment. And it also helps me understand people. Yeah. You know, as does, by the way, on a more practical level, just having worked. I mean, a much more kind of simple level. I mean, just being out in the world and earning a paycheck. So I I tend to think that it's better for priests and religious people in religious orders to have those experiences before they enter so that when someone says, my boss is a jerk, 
You know, you don't just say, oh, well, you know, you must pray for him or her or <laughs> offer it up. Right. You right. know, right. you can, you know what that means. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm struggling with my paycheck or I'm worried about losing my job or I've fallen in love or I've fallen out of love or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm having, I'm having an affair. You know, it's important to, you know, Jesus became human, right? Jesus, Jesus participates in humanity. And so we're called to participate in humanity. And I always say to people, you know, there's a reason Jesus didn't come down as a book. I mean, he came down as a person. He incarnates himself. And so we're called to to kind of identify and participate in people's lives like that. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Jesuit writer and spiritual teacher, Father James Martin. Very active on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram as well. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I just would love to hear how you think about uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola's call to find God in all things um, and how that works for you uh, on in this in social media, in these 21st well, century places con- yeah, where we I congregate. Mean, you know, we're, you know uh, one of the... Um, uh, things that Pope Paul VI said to the Jesuits, I think, was that you are to be found on the boundaries all the time, on the margins. And Pope mm-hmm. Francis said that to us. Uh, and so we're called to be on the boundaries. And, you know, uh, this is where people are, you know. And so I have this public Facebook page and Twitter account and Instagram, which is I'm new to. This is where people are. Well, I so think, if you want to— Yeah, one in six people on the globe now is on Facebook, I heard recently. So it's not even the <laughs> margins anymore. Yeah, well, that's true, too. That's We're on the point. margins here on public radio. That's, okay, let's, let's be clear. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, well, at least Instagram is on the margins. Okay, um, Instagram is on the margins. <laughs> but no, that's where people are. And I, I actually see it as kind of a ministry. I really do. Um, you know, I work at America Magazine, which is a media ministry of the Jesuits. And so we get a lot, we're kind of a clearinghouse for things. So I try to mix it up in terms of uh, evening meditations and prayers, videos, you know, not my own, but, you know, other people's articles and to just show people the riches of the faith uh, and to help them a little bit. And, you know, the number of messages I get from people about, you know, their gratitude for being able to find something on my page is really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I love it. I really enjoy it. And by the way, it doesn't take a whole lot of time, you know, Mm -hmm. just maybe half an hour to an hour a day. I mean, a lot of it is kind of cleaning up the comments, which are kind of crazy. Um, but it's great. And then every morning I tweet out a 140-character homily for people, mm. um, just for the heck of it. And I always say to people, people, uh, you know, this, uh, I won't say who, this, uh, this person came up to me after Mass and said, you know, I don't think it's really appropriate that you, you know, are tweeting and you're kind of, you know, kind of denigrating the gospel. And I looked up all the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor, but... They're all under 140 characters. <laughs> and I tweeted them out one day just to kind of, you know, show people that you could say things with substance in less than 140 characters. Yeah. You know, Jesus did, and so why shouldn't we? But really, the point is that's where people are. And so why not go where they are? Mm-hmm. So, so we're talking around Christmas time, and I've, I'm, a, I'm actually not a big 
Christmas person, mostly because mm-hmm. I just am so discouraged by what mm-hmm. what's happened to it, what we've done well, that to makes it. Two of us. And and it's not even. I mean, the commercial thing is is part of it, and the the compulsory gifts and all that. But but it's also um, even in churches, the story itself um, doesn't have its fullness. Uh, I just wanted to well, I ask I think you. It's, about... I think it's been. I think it's been tamed. Mm-hmm. It's not only been commodified and commercialized. It's been tamed. Mm-hmm. It's a nice, pretty story about you know two nice, good-looking people, usually white. Um, yeah. You know, had a pretty baby uh, in a manger, but in a sense, it's a uh, it's a terrifying story. Uh, you know, in terms of what they had to undergo, and it's also I have to say it is a shocking story. Um, it's not just a baby. It is. God being born in human form, uh, and it's just as shocking as the resurrection. And I think we've we've tamed it, um, and it, in a sense, it doesn't demand our belief. We can just kind of look on it and say, "Well, that's cute," mm-hmm. you know. But if you say to people, "Do you believe that uh, that that is God incarnate in that stable?" You know, what does that mean for you? That God comes to us as the most helpless being that you could imagine, you know, sort of crying and wetting his pants and, uh, you know, needing uh, to be nursed. What does that say to us about who God is for us and how God is for us and how much God loved us to do that? And that, I think, is an entirely different story than, you know, the the kind of Christmas cardy stuff that we see. Mm. So we set it aside. Um, and, and, and I actually, I have to say, I am like really getting to the point where I'm starting to loathe the Christmas season. The yeah. commercialism makes me, um, I saw Chris Rock recently on Saturday night. He was talking about Jesus's birthday season. And he says, you know what? We have taken the person who's probably the least commercial person who's ever lived <laughs> and turned his birthday into, and he said, not just his birthday, but there's a whole season around it. It's what we do with Jesus and the saints. Right. They're. All of these characters are like Thomas Merton, who we talked about at the beginning. What was that? What's the phrase used about him? Wonderfully complicated, full of wonderful mm-hmm. contradictions, mm-hmm. Um, but fully human, messily human. As Merton said, for me to be a saint means to be myself. Hmm. And I remember in the novitiate, um, there was a young novice who would get up in the morning at 630 and pray all the time. And I thought, well, gee, to be holy, I guess I have to do that. So I'd get up and I'd pray and I was falling asleep all the time. Mm. And then there was another novice who was super quiet. So I thought, oh, I have to be really quiet and diffident and sort of soft-spoken. And my spiritual director said to me, what do you, what's wrong with you? You're so quiet. And I said, well, so-and-so's quiet and he's really holy. And he said, you know, in order to become holy, you don't become someone else. You know, you just become yourself. Mm. So there's a sense that we forget that the saints were themselves too. And Jesus was himself. We tame them take all the rough edges off of them, and we put them on a pedestal, and then they make no claim on us because we say, well, we can't possibly be like that. We can't be perfect like they were without any rough edges. So, so therefore, I don't have to be a saint. I don't have to try. And that's what happens, and that's how we let, our, let ourselves off the hook from the call to holiness.
Father James Martin is a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large of America Magazine. His books include Jesus, A Pilgrimage, The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, and most recently, Seven Last Words. Do you have any jokes about Dominicans? Benedictines? Oh my gosh, are you kidding? There are like a hundred of them. <laughs> okay, um, so you said some of them are good, so tell us one that we would universally... Well, I wouldn't tell you my bad ones. I'm not going to tell you the bad ones. Um, <laughs> a guy uh, is trying to find... Um, some help with a problem he has. So he knocks on the door uh, of a Dominican church and he says, do you say the rosary here? And the Dominican says, yeah. He says, you know, we're Dominicans. And he says, if, if I give you a little donation, will you say a rosary for an intention I have? And the Dominican says, what's your intention? And he says, I want a Lexus. And the, the Dominican says, I, I don't know what that is. And the guy says, well, forget it. I'll go to a Franciscan church. So he goes to a Franciscan church, knocks on the door. Guy opens up in his brown habit. He says, well, you say a rosary if I give you a donation and if I you know, tell you my intention. And the Franciscan says, sure, I'm happy to do that. What's your intention? And he says, I want a Lexus. And the Franciscan said, I, I, what is that? And he says, forget that. So he says, I'll go to the Jesuits. So he knocks on the door. A guy opens up and he says, uh, are you a Jesuit? Yep. He says, uh, listen, before I go any further, I need to ask you something. He says, uh, do you know what a Lexus is? He goes, do I know what a Lexus is? He says, you know, half my parishioners drive Lexuses or Lexi. <laughs> and uh, he says, will you say a, a rosary for my intention if I give you a little donation? And the Jesuit says, yeah. What's a rosary? <laughs> <laughs> okay, those I literally good. have about 50 of those jokes. Right, so. well, I'm glad I asked. Hear Father James Martin tell another joke and read a beautiful prayer by Thomas Merton in my unedited interview with him. That's always part of our weekly podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or download it on our website, where you can also find our entire archive. Discover all the ways to listen and share at onbeing.org. Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Bethany Mann, Selena Carlson, Brendan Sturmer, and Ross Feehan. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners are the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org, the Fetzer Institute helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. And the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production.